called How People Change. See the cover of your worship folder. Now we had Palm Sunday, we had Easter, we had Brandon preaching last week. Thank you, Brandon. And so we've had a couple of a couple of three weeks off, but I know you're all very sharp on everything we've covered. So uh, we'll, we won't have to do that much review. How People Change is the process of sanctification, and we've been getting ideas from a book of the same title, How People Change. And so uh, this is part, uh, really part 13 of, of a 14-part series, and uh, so let's pray for God's Word this morning. Our Father, thank you for the Word of God that's with us. Thank you for your faithfulness to us. And we pray, Lord, that uh, we, would, we would understand um, that we need humility in our lives. Give us that teachableness, that heart that says, I'm eager, I want to learn, I want to grow. Father, give us the desire. Meet with us, Lord, at that place where we choose. Meet with us at that place where we make decisions. Meet with us, Lord, where we think we may not need a Redeemer and reveal to us at that moment that we need a Redeemer. And be present, Lord. Show us the way. Help us today as we hear the Word of God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, so there is, a, there is an opportunity before us to have the cross in our, in our day-to-day experience. Uh, that's my great need to realize and to remember that I have a Redeemer in the moments of my life that I may not particularly like or enjoy, but I have a Redeemer for this moment. Uh, and so we're looking today at the idea of how the cross works in our daily living, how the cross works in our daily living. Now, the cross is really a summary term for all that Jesus has done for us. So um, the cross is a, a way of remembering the gospel, okay? So out, on your outline there, uh, on your sermon page, I have a quote for you from the book. And it goes like this, God enters our lostness with comprehensive and practical wisdom of his word. The Bible unfolds, the Bible unfolds life as God sees it, inviting us to know God, to know ourselves, to know life, and to know how God works to undo the damage sin has done in each of us. The Bible is the ultimate spiritual compass able to tell us exactly where we are and where we need to go, all right? So the scriptures are vital. The scriptures are vital for this process of growth. They are revealing to us God's map, God's direction for us, how we are to change. I've listed also for you the elements of the how people change model It's there for you on your outline if you want to take a look at it. It's very basic. It explains to us what life is like in the fallen world. The Bible is very honest about our very real world. Um, The Bible is also telling us uh, what we are like as fallen human beings. What What are the motivational 
reasons why we do what we do. And then the Bible reveals to us how he is Savior and Lord of all things. We need that in the moments of our life. And then how he's progressively transforming us by his grace. Your life, your life is much more than growing up, getting an education, finding a job, getting married, having children, retiring, and then enjoying retirement and then passing on. Uh, that's sort of a typical, basic, sort of a vanilla way of looking at life. Well, your, your life is actually more of a spiritual biography. It is, how is faith working? What are, how are you responding to the heat and pressures and afflictions in your life? Your life is much more than just uh, sort of the rudimentary stages that we typically think of. Your life is a spiritual biography. How are you responding to your circumstances, to people? Is faith functioning? Is unbelief functioning? So your life is a spiritual biography. The scriptures are functioning like a mirror, revealing, them, revealing yourself to you. The scriptures also function like a map. Where do I need to go? What direction do I need to be thinking? And then thirdly, you, the Bible is like a shovel. It digs deep into our heart. And by the way, we're going to do some shovel work today. Okay. So, <clears throat> Philippians 2, 1 through 11. We're going to focus a great deal on verses 1 through 4. Spend a little time in 5 through 9. And I'm thinking about whether or not we might need to just readdress this next week as well. We'll see how this goes. <clears throat> but I'd like to fo- uh, finish with how do you talk to your false saviors? Because the, bo- the battle of our hearts is really between false saviors and the true savior. How we change is engaging the true savior. That's how we change. So let's look at this passage in Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. And as we look at these, I want you to, you're going to hear some exhortations. In fact, you're going to hear nine exhortations, nine exhortations. And I want you to ask this question, and I'll come back to this again. Here's the question. As you hear these exhortations, they're relational exhortations, As you hear these, I want you to ask this question. Why would a Christian do these things? Just as simple as that is, why would a Christian do these things? As we're going through this series, and really uh, I hope in all of our preaching and teaching as a church, we're thinking about the motivational structure of the the Christian life. We're thinking about the, the right motives to do the right things, okay? Uh, you can do the right things from a wrong motive, by the way. Uh, we could talk about that. Um, but we want to do the right thing from the right motive. So think about these things. Uh, think about that question as we look at these, at these, at these uh, exhortations. Look at verse 1. Paul asks this question. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy complete my joy this is verse 2 by being of the same mind having the same love being in full accord and of one mind so a uh, very interesting passage he says if there's anything in Christ that will bring you together um, 
Uh, pursue that, as he's essentially saying. If there's anything in the gospel that will help you be of one mind, um, that will make my heart sing as an apostle. And that tells us something that's going on in the Philippian church. Uh, the Philippian church was the first church in Europe. Um, the Philippian church is where Lydia, in Acts 16, uh, the first convert recorded in the Bible was a woman named Lydia. Uh, she was from Philippi. So Philippi uh, apparently had some relational struggles. Whenever you're talking to people about being a, be, be of one mind, uh, that means they're not of one mind. Uh, if they're having a hard time being unified in purpose, uh, that is a struggle for a church. That's, that's not good for a church that's struggling at these relational levels. So the passage is moving through step-by-step relational exhortations. If there's any fellowship in the Spirit, if there's any motivation to have affection and compassion or sympathy for each other, Paul says, man, if you were to engage this, if you were beginning to act this way, you would really make my heart sing. Think about this, though. Look at verse 2. Look at verse 2. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in, being in full accord and of one mind. Being of the one mind, having the same love. Having the same love. Wow, that's a, that's a high standard. In fact, what, some translations have maintain love. Maintain love. Or maintaining the same love. In, in life in the church, uh, maybe if you have reflected on a time when you found a church, maybe it was Trinity here, and I would think there's an initial excitement when you find a church, and maybe you feel you, you're connecting with people, building friendships, it's feeling good. And uh, the, that emotional uh, feeling uh, is good, it's great, but as time goes on, uh, it's hard to maintain love. Paul, in his wisdom, understands the Christian life that as more time goes along, love is not to be assumed. Love is to be continually thought about and to maintain the same love. To keep that same love is actually a big challenge. There's a challenge to maintaining love and the initial excitement can wane, especially when you get to know people. And their little irritations, or their big irritations, uh, their little quirky ways, or their big quirky ways. And there's a temptation to keep your distance, to only engage so much. Paul goes on to describe being united in spirit, united in spirit. And then he says, intent on one purpose. He's layering thought after thought. Be a family. Be together in this Christian life. Work things out and continue to have affection and unity. All right. And then he goes even deeper in verse 3. He's not done with his exhortations. We might at that point say, well, I'm not a I'm not divisive person. I'm not a rabble rouser. I... I, uh, yeah, I, I enjoy unity in the church. I'm, 
I'm, I'm, uh, yeah, that doesn't relate to me. Watch how Paul goes even deeper. Look at verse 3. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. Uh, some translations have, do nothing, do nothing from selfishness. See, he's just dug deeper. He's gone deeper. Do nothing from rivalry, meaning when you interact with people, you are contentious in your spirit or you are wanting to prove something and you are being selfish in your disregard for the relationship. Your tone is off. The way you conduct yourself is off. The way you speak, you want to be seen as the preeminent one, the really logical one, the reasoning one, the one who's after truth. You want to rise above others in the way you are being contentious. It could be also translated a, an attitude that produces strife. The word conceit, um, it's an old English word called vainglory. Have you ever come across that? Vainglory. What it means is that as you're interacting with people, you are wanting to be seen as preeminent. You're, you want your opinion. You're, you keep driving your point. You exhaust people with your need to be right. It's very hard, by the way, in a Christian life to be right. <laughs> uh, you can be right, but it's very hard. In marriage, do you find it easy to be right in your marriage? Hmm. I think you're getting it now. If you're right on a subject, if you're right on a matter, you must now handle things carefully because a thing called your flesh, that residual part of your old nature that's still there, your flesh will rise up. The spirit, Galatians 5 tells us that the flesh and the spirit are battling and the spirit is leading you to a place of humility. The Spirit is leading you to a place of patience. The Spirit is leading you to a place of listening. You don't have to assert yourself. Yeah, you may have the correct bead on the truth here. It's okay. Spirit is guiding you in humility, and the flesh is at war with you. The flesh is saying, are you kidding me? Jump on it. Put them down. Put them in their place. How dare they disrespect you? Or whatever the flesh might say. These are relational exhortations that we should heed carefully. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit. But in humility, and here is the zinger. If, it, if, we, if we haven't had any zingers up to this point, here's the, here's the zinger. In humility, count others more significant than yourselves. Does anybody see a need for change in your own heart here? Count others more significant? Hmm. And in humility of mind, uh, do that. How is it possible that a heart could want to be this way? How could a Christian desire to be this way? Think about that. Because there's something in our flesh that says, humility of mind, I don't need that. I've been wise most of my life. 
I figured things out at the office. I got my kids well, pretty well ship shape, and uh, I know how to fix things. Esteem one another as more significant, more important than oneself. That's a pretty high standard. We are not likely to esteem other people as better than ourselves. That is counterintuitive. But what we are to think about is that we are in a state of grace like every other believer. Every one of you is my equal. I have no superiority over you at all. Every one of you is my equal in God's grace. Now, there are some of us who are, in a worldly way, uh, more gifted, perhaps with math. You got a nice SAT score. Good job. But grace is dispensed equally to all of us. And what grace truly understood looks like is deference to other believers. Deference. It means there's a listening spirit. There's a kindness toward others in a relational way. We can actually prefer their thoughts, their experience, their judgment. We might be intrigued by how God is guiding them and leading them. They, in fact, might have an insight that we don't. Can we really give way to other people? And in verse 4, Paul seems like he's summarizing his, his words. In verse 4, he says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, that means there's a reasonableness about uh, taking care of yourself, right? You can brush your teeth, you can present yourself, you can go shop for clothes, you can, right. There, there's normal things that you need to attend to in your life. But Christians need to be told that's not everything in your life. Look not only to the interests of others, but also, excuse me, not only to your own interests, but also the interests of others. Now I'm asking once again, how is this possible? Because this is a fundamental core change of heart. Same mind, same love, united in spirit, intent on one purpose, nothing from selfishness. Nothing from vainglory, having humility that regards others more important, looking out not just for your own interests, but for the interests of others. That's the Christian life. That is a relational picture of how things ought to be. Now, here's kind of what happens. There's two things going on. Typically, when you hear that list, <clears throat> here's kind of what happens. Some of us minimize our shortcomings. And, um, and so what we've done is we sort of, if God's standards are here, what we do is we go, well, let's move them down to where I am. <laughs> okay? 
I have a, we just kind of move them down. We have our own translation in our mind. It's, well, it doesn't really, that's just, it says, in other words, we're reducing God's standard down. Or there's another thing we do, and that is, instead of looking deep at our sin patterns, we say, ah, actually my sin pattern isn't that bad. Make sense? So we're underestimating the holiness of God, and we're overestimating our performance. What we need is a daily sense of desperation. What we need is a mini conversion every day. What do I, why, do, why do I say that? A mini conversion is, Lord, I see what your standards are. Just like a non-Christian being told, there's none righteous, no, not one. We hold that standard to our heart and we cry out, Oh Lord, give me a heart to love your holiness. I need Jesus in this moment to do the things you're calling me to do. A mini conversion. Selfishness within the body of Christ apparently needs to be addressed pretty regularly. It's right here in Scripture in the founding, the church that the Apostle Paul founded had relational struggles. And the text probes deep into our experience with all of these exhortations. Now, what we want to do is this. We want to figure out how to be motivated, not by shame, not by guilt, not by duty, but to be motivated in the day-to-day -day grind of life with a great gratitude and understanding of God's grace and a vision of, a vision of Jesus that warms the heart where these things become desirable. The self is pushed down. The self ruling as king of your life. You see the enslavement of that. You see it's no longer that attractive to you because King Jesus is looking far more attractive. So the Apostle Paul now sets up in verse 5 the foundation for doing everything that he's just talked about. So he says in verse 5, let's read this. Have this mind among yourselves. So essentially, he's saying, this is the key. Which is yours in Christ Jesus, and now he's speaking of Christ, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. This is what theologians call the emptying of Christ, meaning that he came out of his spirit position of glory and entered this world and he made himself nothing taking the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself if that wasn't enough he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. All right, so what does the Apostle Paul do? He says, well, have this mind, this attitude that was also in Christ Jesus. He was in a position of remarkable power. He was in a position of glory, and he emptied himself of that, and he came to this earth. He humbled himself, became a servant, and if you want to know what kind of a servant he was, 
He was a servant all the way to our deepest need, which required him to die. <clears throat> all right, so somewhere in this is the motivation for all those nine exhortations. Be of the same mind, be humble, consider others more important than yourself. Now, what Paul has done is he has contrasted two ways of living. Two ways of living. The one way of living is uh, for my comforts, my comforts. And the other way of living is for my Savior, in response to my Savior's grace. Now, the comforts are all listed up there in those nine exhortations. So, for instance, if I am cranky and in the flesh and um, I don't want to cooperate, I'm at a, some, you know, maybe an elders meeting or something, and I just want to get my opinion done and get my way or something like that, right? What I'm doing is I'm fighting for a comfort. Uh, I'm fighting for um, convincing people of my opinion. I'm fighting for a resolution of something that feels uncomfortable to me. Let's get this over so I break out all my rhetorical skills. It's a small little toolbox. But uh, I break out all these rhetorical skills and I, I, I'm, 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 you know, I, I don't know. Have I ever done this, Brandon, in an elders meeting? I don't know. Maybe you, you got to testify. And so I, I you know, I'm, I, I'm trying to push this all away. It's, un, it's, it's, it's not, I, you know, I don't know. I've got to get home. I, I want things to get wrapped up. And all the, what's going on? I want a comfort. I want a comfort. I want to go on to item number four on the list or something. I want a comfort in that moment. Think about it. Think about what does it mean to be disengaged from church life? Just think about that. No, you're here. You're probably not the right crowd to say that to because you're here. You're not disengaged. But what does it mean to be disengaged from Christians? What does it mean to not have the same mind or same unity or same purpose? What does that mean? Well, I've got my own mind. I've got my own unity. I've got my own purpose. Yeah, I'll come to church, but I'm not going to be very engaged. It's a message of this is your comfort. This is you have found a way of is it saying it too much of being saved? You manage your schedule because that's a way of being saved. You manage your, uh, the way you speak to people. Perhaps you put them down. Perhaps you put them in their place. That's a way of being saved. Now you might think, that's, not, that's, just, that, that, that's not really what's going on. Well, are you able to make other people more important than yourself? And how would you ever do that? How would it ever be that you are so comfortable and so at peace with yourself and so uh, under control, self-control, that you would be so happy and you would become a servant? See? This is what's being presented to us. There was one who delighted in the Father. There was one who rejoiced in doing the will of the Father. There was one who emptied himself of all privilege, one who emptied himself of all, of all power and became one of us, born as a little child like the rest of us. And he lived among us and he continued this downward descent, trusting his Father, downward descent all the way to the cross. Verse 5, have this attitude that Jesus had, that although he had this power, although he had this position, he didn't regard equality with God something to be grasped, something to be held on to, right? So you've got a great position at work, you've got a 
position in the church. You've got some something going for you. Think about what goes for you, and do you hang on to that? Do you grip it? Do you say this is this is what makes my life work? Why does it? Why do you say that? Because it is a comfort. It's a comfort. I would say it's a comfort idol. I want to be saved in some way by acting this way. So here's what I want to do is I want to just give you a few thoughts and then I'll wrap this up. We have to preach to our false saviors, okay? Now, I don't know particularly what your false savior might be, but I am going to guess you are like me and I have a false savior called comfort. Um, I want to be comfortable. Uh, But you might have your career as a, a false savior uh, you might have a pleasure as your false savior. You might have independence. Uh, there's many, many things, but I want you to be able to preach to yourself. And here's what Paul Tripp recommends. He takes this Philippians 2 passage and he begins to preach to comfort. He begins to talk to comfort. And listen to this. I think you'll catch up. I think you'll catch on. He's saying this to comfort. He's talking to comfort now. He says, comfort. You look beautiful to me right now, but when did you ever leave your place of prominence and glory to humble yourself for me? Comfort, when did you ever do that? Here's another one, number two. Comfort, when did you ever enter my world to suffer on my behalf? Think about that for your career. Think about that for anything you're holding on to. Talk to it. Talk to it. Comfort, number three. When did you ever shed your blood so that I could be cleansed from my sin? Talk to your career that way. Reduce the prominence of your career. Thank God for your career, but it is not your Savior. Number four, comfort. When were you ever raised from the dead on my behalf? When did you ever promise to give me new life and power? Number five, comfort, when did you ever promise to send the Holy Spirit to fill me with true comfort that would help me to please God even when my earthly comfort was threatened? And number six, comfort, when did you ever promise to intercede for me uh, to my heavenly Father so that I could be strong in trials and afflictions? Another one, comfort, when did you ever promise to come again and redeem me from things that capture me and make me their slave? So why aren't we changing? Well, we are we are not moved by our Savior's work. Or, here's another way of putting it, we are not working at being moved by our Savior's work. We assume we see it clearly enough. We, see, we assume that we know it clearly enough. In other words, we are content with what we know about our Savior. That's what I would suggest. And uh, he is comforting us just enough, but not in the radical way that's described in Philippians 2. The descent of Jesus from glory to serve us is enough to capture our hearts and to change our hearts and to redirect our hearts. And one of the practical benefits is relational humility. 
relational humility because you'll be so satisfied in the grace that God's given you in Jesus that people take on a different role. They're important, but they're not ultimately important. And you can serve them, not rule over them. And not be afraid of them. And not be afraid of your circumstances. Because you have such a kind Savior who went all the way to the cross for you. Do you feel and sense the power? Get that dynamic. Keep reading Philippians 2. Preach to your heart. Preach to those comforts that are ruling your heart. And ask them those tough questions. And uh, may God begin to really get you at that deep level for motivational uh, and real change that's based on the gospel. That's great. Let's pray. Father, I just sense your kindness today among us. I sense that you are with us, that you've been with us in this text, and that you have delighted to show us Jesus, who is this gracious servant and slave who went all the way to the cross for us and enables us, enables us relationally to listen, to have self-control, to, um, to have all kinds of beautiful relational qualities. So help us, Lord. Help us to engage this Savior. And uh, we, we pray these things in the name of Christ.